Welcome to The Grid, sponsored by PokerStars. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. I told you a few months ago that there are some very exciting reasons why I've been especially busy lately. Well, one such reason is that I'm coming out with Chess Queens. It's a totally updated and revised version of my previous book on women in chess. Right now, orders are my love language. With that in mind, let's get into this episode's special guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. I'm super excited about today's guest. Wake C, aka Crybaby, a high-stakes online player who was battled and won with the best players in the world. After graduating college, he dropped out of a highly promising six-figure starting salary to pursue a life of freedom and financial success via poker, despite having no bankroll. So don't don't all try this at home, guys. Or is he as he wrote on his Twitter thread, I booked a one-way ticket to Thailand to become a poker pro. I didn't know how to play the game yet. At one point, I was one of the best in the world. He's now passionate about spreading messages of clear thinking, mental and physical health, and how that connects with true understanding of poker theory and decision-making. So obviously perfect for the grid. And today he brings us a hand with ace-queen offsuit from an early shot at 1KNL. I'm a big fan of your Twitter, so really exciting to get you on the grid today. Thanks for the introduction, Jen. I'm also excited. Thanks for reaching out and for inviting me on the podcast. So when I asked you about a hand, sometimes this can be hard for online players because, of course, you place so much volume. How did you come to this particular hand, which you describe as being an early shot at 1K, no limit, it a very memorable hand for you? And at what point in your poker journey in Thailand did this one come up? When you asked me for a hand, it was very difficult to come up with which hand I'm supposed to bring here. And you gave me a couple of pointers and I immediately thought about this one, which is interesting because I don't really mention this hand to anyone and I haven't thought much of, of this hand after, after I learned the lessons from it. But the reason why this hand was pivotal for me in my poker journey was because it was my first time playing 1KNL. If you notice in the hand, it's also a nine-handed table and usually I don't play nine-handed because that's just for nits. Uh, so I'm a six max pro and it was my first shot at 1KNL. There was a seat open in a very soft table. Uh, so there's a big whale on that table. And yeah, I took my shot. I blasted off a stack and I really tried to justify and explain this hand to myself. I was on the stake back then and I thought it was a good play. I sent this hand to my backer and he was like, I wouldn't do that. So I tried justifying it to myself for a while. I really reflected a long time about this hand, eventually reached out to Linus Love, which we all know is 
basically the best player in the world. And uh, he gracefully responded. This doesn't mean that the viewers should go ahead and bother him with your hand histories, but he made an exception and he actually responded in detail. So I really get got to see his thought process. And that made me realize that the way that he was approaching the game was very different to how I was approaching it that, at that time. It was much more structured. It was much more systematic. And it was the beginning of me diving much more into poker theory and understanding the game better. You mentioned nine-handed poker stars, first shot or early shot rather at 1KNL. And there was a whale in the game and that's why you sat open seat. Now, was this particular hand against the whale or was it against one of the, the fellow pros? Uh, so this hand was against one of the fellow pros. I didn't play much. So the villain is called Stan. Didn't play much volume against this guy. I think he was playing nine-handed rec table. So at this point, I was mainly playing 500 zoom as my main game. Didn't see that guy. And as 500 zoom recs, we always have a certain level of arrogance to us to where we don't respect people who don't play 500 zoom. To me, that was just a nine-handed rec, and I expected him to be nitty and not that good at the game, as arrogant as I was back then. Uh, so that was my read going into this hand. And as to how the hand played out, I think he was, yeah, he opened up from middle position plus two. So that's the hijack. In a six max game, I am in the big blind and defend ace queen offsuit. He opened 2.7x, which is a larger sizing for online, usually online opening sizes at uh, from, from the hijack usually go from min raise to 2.5x. In life, it's vastly different. Live players open way too large. And I defend in the big blind. So hijack opened to $27. You called in the big line. So I have ace-queen offsuit. I think versus the hijack open, I mainly want to just call this hand. But given that he's sized larger, I'm inclined to reduce my calling frequency here overall. And when I defend, I would have a higher three-betting frequency than versus a smaller size. So I have the ace of hearts and the queen of clubs. The ace of hearts is very relevant in this hand. Club comes... 697 with two hearts and one diamond checks he bets about third pot and i raise when he bets first of all i was making the assumption if i remember correctly that he was betting his entire range for a third pot which wouldn't be the one of the nash equilibrium strategies here in the spot usually you would have a mixed frequency of larger bets smaller bets and checking here on this board but some people simplify to range bet. And I think range betting in general here for a small size is a fine simplification. You won't be losing much expected value. You'll be losing even less EV if your opponents don't defend properly versus the range bet by hauling more and raising more often. So I thought he was range betting. I also thought that he was going to overfall versus my race. So I decided to have a higher raising frequency. In this case, ace queen of with the ace of hearts seemed like a good candidate to raise. You could call it a semi-bluff-ish hand. I have some back to equity. I have ace-queen high. I raise around 66%, I think this was. If I would be playing the spot right now, I would either have a half pot or a 66% size. I wouldn't be too fussed about having more sizes than that. And he decides to call. I actually didn't see this right now. So we are 156 big blinds deep. And a reminder, the, the flop is six, seven, nine with two hearts, the seven and the nine are hearts, and you have the ace of hearts. 
Okay, so if we want to break my flop raising range down here a bit more, uh, other hands that I would be raising would be straights. So 10-8 here is a straight, 8-5 suited is a straight. I would have some two pairs, but I think they're fine with calling. I would be raising them a little bit more against the range bet, however. And uh, I have a couple of sets here in my range too. Yeah, I would also have some more kind of like merged raises with hands like 8-9, uh, 6-8 suited, 7-8, those kind of hands. And perhaps also some weaker top pairs that don't have the open-ended straight draw. But that would just be because I would believe that this guy is betting range and also likely falling too much. And then all kinds of bluffs. So we have gut shots, uh, flush draws, and apparently a hand like mine. So a lot of people do struggle, whether they're tournament players or cash game players, with uh, calling um, versus check raises, uh, especially against aggressive opponents. When you say that you were check raising more than you would versus Pio or, or a PO or a player that you really 100% respect, what are the hands that you expect him to fold that he should call? Okay, so that's a good question. So I haven't looked at this specific spot for a long time. But if I would just be looking at it right now, so here's, here's a hijack opening range. Doesn't actually connect super well with 697. So what I'm thinking right now in my mind is whether or not he should be defending with ace-king if he has a king of hearts here. And uh, I think it's close. I think it's a mixed fault. So not too sure if my read back then was correct that he would be overfolding here. The defense might be somewhat straightforward on this board. Okay, so something like Ace-King would be an example, a great example um, with the Ace of Hearts. And then what about hands with two diamonds in them? I think if you have the diamond and the backdoor straight draw, you should be defending here. And if you just have something like King-Queen of Diamonds, that's just a fault. So in this case, I think this player might be doing it correctly. Yeah. Even, even Queen-Jack of Diamonds is getting closer because my race size is somewhat larger. As I said, like this board has hands that he can continue with that have a lot more equity than Queen Jack of Diamonds. I don't the, the the main thing is just because if he range bets, he usually has to defend more hands than if he wouldn't be range betting in a race because his range would be much more constricted when he wouldn't be range betting. Uh, so but I still believe that even after range bet Queen Jack of Diamonds is somewhat close. Maybe it would be defended at like 20% frequency, but not too sure about that right now. So you're saying that would be okay if he were to fold the queen jack of diamonds, but you know, he'd have to defend with the queen 10 of diamonds or the king 10 of diamonds or the ace king with one heart. And some of those hands you thought maybe he would be folding with making it a, an even stronger check raise. Yeah. Now that we're talking about it, I think that my assumption of him overfolding much here was just perhaps mistaken back then. So if I would be playing this hand right now, I would may probably not be thinking, okay, this guy's overfolding massively. I'm just going to raise a lot. As I said, like back then, I wasn't that complete of a player. So there's a certain level of arrogance that's potentially going into this hand as well, where it's like, okay, I want to just uh, push the nit rack away or just not having a lot of respect for that guy's game, even, even though I didn't even know him. So, <laughs> And then he did call. He called your raise and um, the turn came four of hearts. Yeah, so the four of hearts is a turn. And I started to bet, I think this is around one third pot, maybe a bit lower, like 28% pot or something here on the turn. Um, the idea behind betting a smaller size here is because the flush completes. So if you think about our opponent's range after I check raise the flop, he would be mainly continuing with pretty strong hands on the flop and a lot of them would be flush draws or having at least a heart in them. So four of hearts, very good for his continuing range. 
for my range, especially for the value range that I'm raising on the flop, which is two pairs and sets, the four of hearts is a scary card in the sense that um, now we're losing against all the flushes that just came in. So if I would be betting too big, if, if you imagine if I would be betting a pot size bet on a turn and then jamming the river, our opponent would just be continuing with, with flushes. So there's not much merit in having that kind of strategy with most of my value betting range at this point. Betting a smaller size, the idea behind that is that, okay, so if I have my two pair hands, I'm kind of targeting the over pairs or the pairs that still have to call against the smaller size. So I'm still getting some value from that. Whereas I'm, it, it doesn't really function like that in theory, but you can imagine it as if I'm in a sense buying the pot, buying the turn and reaching the river without inflating the pot too much. So I think the strategy is actually pretty decent now. Having the small size here, I think if you wouldn't have a small size, it would also be okay. Then you would be checking more and maybe having a more polarized bet here with the nut flushes and perhaps king high flushes. But uh, I'm fine with with the way that I played the hand and I think it makes sense with my hand as well. Yeah, so you mentioned you would also probably check a lot here, or especially if you didn't have a small size. What about with your with your with your own flushes? Would you do you think you would choose this size or perhaps check or some combination? Yeah, so I think it makes sense to have a polarized size with the strongest flushes. So with hands like um, let's say ace three of hearts, it would make sense to have a polarized size. So you could be betting a little bit larger with that hand with the intention of getting it in by the river. But you don't have to. I would also be okay with not having the larger size. But if I would have a larger size, the idea behind the larger size is to reduce the SPR and getting the good jam in on the river. And that really makes the most sense with the strongest flushes. So the nut flushes and perhaps some king high flushes. So if I had something like jack 10 of hearts or queen 10 of hearts here, I wouldn't be too interested in betting larger because I'm also blocking some of the calling range that I would want him to have if I, for example, if I would have the queen high flush, I would want to get paid by the 10 high flush. So this would be my thought process nowadays and the way that I'm constructing my range nowadays with the turn sizing and all of that. I don't think I thought like that back then. I think back then I was thinking more in the lines of what people traditionally mistake that people just try to memorize and play in a way that they feel like they're supposed to be playing based on some of the simulations that they run. And I can imagine that back then I was just thinking that, okay, the four of hearts, I think Pio would be betting a third pot here. So that's what I'm going to do. And indeed, uh, you did bet $70 into $236 and you got raised. The raise is very interesting. So I remember very vividly back then I trying to figure out what his raising range would look like. And I somehow imagined that he would be raising his sets here and I would that he would be raising some some bluffs here. And there was once again probably some kind of level of arrogance and like mental mental inconsistencies going on in my head that made me rationalize these kind of things. In hindsight, I especially uh, so no disrespect to the player at all, Stan, if you're watching this, I, I don't actually know how you play and stuff. I don't have any judgment, but I think back then, at least it's very unrealistic to be saying that he would be having some merged raises. So, uh, I think his range would mainly be strong flushes and especially me blocking the ace of hearts. I doubt that he has many bluffs in the spot in hindsight at this point, if I would be in this hand right now, I would likely just fold. But back then I had a different idea. So I decided to go ahead and three bet him. Also, I think this three bet was mainly just uh, once again, me just 
having this idea that Pyre would be playing a certain way or Pio Solver. Or so for the viewers, I don't know how familiar they are with solvers. So we have these solvers and they produce uh, game theory optimal results based on the parameters we put in. And we can run sims. And so I ran a sim. So I ran a lot of sims back then. And when I was in this hand, I probably just imagined, okay, I'm supposed to be three betting here. Uh, and, and probably rolled it or justified it in some kind of way. And coupled with the remaining, with this level of arrogance that I had in this spot that also wanted this to be the reality, I went ahead and three bet him to 527 here. So you you bet 70 and he raises a little over 3x, right? So he makes it like 220. Hmm. And you mentioned that today you would actually fold there. Oh, you so so guys, it's four, six, seven, nine with three hearts on the board, right? And you have the ace of hearts. So you're saying just he's not bluffing enough to make the the nut draw valuable enough to call this raise. So it depends a little bit how strong my range is actually here. It's possible that it could be a fault. Really depends on the options that I have on the river as well. So if I I think having a donk size on the river would be pretty significant to make this call here. And nowadays, if I would approach the spot, if I had the read that this guy is just mainly having like king high and queen high flushes right now, so three betting doesn't make a lot of sense. I could have a three betting range. I'll get to that later, but let's go from the hard exploit route. Okay, if I call here and if I hit the river, would he be calling a donk? What kind of donk sizes would he be calling as part of the expected value calculation of whether or not this call makes sense? Right. And actually, that might be a decent line here. If he actually has the king high, queen high flushes mainly, then I believe this guy would probably be calling my donk on the river. So it would maybe make sense to call here and then donk river when you hit. Do three bet this turn something you say you wouldn't do nowadays and he called you yeah probably wouldn't do it nowadays but uh back then i raised he called river the jack of spades the pot is now 1.3k and we have 920 behind at least back then the play was clear for me it was to go all in he actually tanked he tanked for a long time so at this point i was sweating it this was my first shot at 1k no limit even though it's just two buy-ins at 500 zoom. It still felt a bit different to be jamming 1K on the river. I don't think I jammed a lot of 1K stacks on the river at this point in my life online. And uh, so I was really sweating it. And uh, he tanked for a long time and then ultimately ended up calling, showing the king high flush with king of hearts, 10 of hearts. And I was so furious about back then I thought I was being nit rolled and so on. And I was pretty annoyed at this end. Uh, yeah, because when he was tanking, what did you think he had? I wasn't sure. So um, I had this idea in my head back then. I remembered that he would be raising some sets on the turn, which I think is ludicrous nowadays. So I thought, okay, maybe he has a set, maybe he has some kind of bluff catcher, but I could also see this guy folding some flushes on the river. So I was just hoping for that to happen, but it didn't. No, no. And you lost the hand to King Ten of Hearts. And uh, this, this hand you mentioned earlier, in the intro to the hand that you um, were under a stake at the time? Yes, yes. And was this the, the stake that you mentioned in other interviews and on your Twitter feed with a uh, poker detox or was it a different one? No, it was a different one. I had a private backer at this point, yeah. Ah, okay, that, okay. Poker detox would have grilled me for this hand for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why? Nick would have really went into me rationalizing the turn and criticizing how I'm just forcing aggression and fancy play syndrome, that kind of thing. Ah, fancy play syndrome and forcing aggression. Okay, but interestingly, you chose this hand to reach out to Linus about. And why do you think he replied to you? Because this was like a cold, kind of like a cold call, right? Well, it was, yeah, it was a cold DM. 
I actually found this. I remembered this hand. I forgot about this for a long time. And when you asked me forehand, I logged in back on two plus two where I sent the DM and I found this through the chat. And I think it went something along the lines of me just messaging him in general and uh, asking. The message was good, actually, like back then. I, I just randomly called DM, but you could really feel the passion and the motivation of a young grinder. So I, I was explaining him my situation. I was telling him that I'm completely committed and about my results and how I wanted to give everything in order to become better. So initially I asked him for coaching or staking. That was it, no hand. And then he said, uh, sounds like a great, actually sounds like a good candidate. I don't think you'll have problem finding somebody, but he was not interested in doing that. He was just focused on playing himself. And then I sent him another message where, okay, blah, blah, blah. I just took my first 1K shot. It would be really nice if you could give me your thoughts on it. And to that, he replied. And really gracious for that reply, actually. Just reading it a couple of days back again made me realize what kind of impact it had in my game. And also just, he put a lot of effort in. Like it was, it was a wall of text that he replied to me. And he really went in quite some depth about what kind of decisions he would be making and what he thinks of my play. So that was extremely helpful. That's great. So it sounds like, if, first of all, it was polite of him to reply, um, thanks, but no thanks to your initial inquiry about staking and coaching. And then obviously it must've been a slightly difficult decision for him because when you followed up, he clearly showed a lot of interest. Well, with no further ado, what was his main feedback? The main feedback I would say, if I would try to summarize it was that he showed me that his line of thinking was a lot more strategic and structured. There was no stuff such as how the solvers would be playing the spot. There was no, um, you know, because when I played the spot, I tried to replicate the solver, right? And usually what a lot of wrecks nowadays do too is they play a hand and then they are unsure and they check the solver and the solver says it's fine and then they feel good about it or they feel bad about it. Right. It's so stupid actually, but one of the reasons back then why I sent him this hand was because I wanted to see how good I was. So, so unexpected, I, I probably wanted to get praised for playing in a solver-esque way or something, but he didn't mention anything of solvers. He just, he just talked to me about what the strategy, what he thinks about the strategy. He asked me some questions about, do you want to... Well, if, if you think this guy defends like this, questionable if you want to have a strategy like that and uh, kind of went into more of that, that really different way of looking at the game. And back then, I think I was, it was eye-opening for me to hear his thought process being different to what I was used to. It was very like clean and structured, and, but it was still not the thing that really changed my game, I think. It was sometimes you need to hear these things multiple times until it really clicks. Yeah, for example, when I have coaching sessions with my clients, I sometimes explain some, context, some concepts and they nod and everything's clear, but it's only like after a couple of months where it's like, oh shit, now I can really see it. And I think the same thing happened back then with me where, okay, so that's his approach and maybe it was, it was eye-opening, but maybe to some extent it wasn't even like I just, I believed him or something. Maybe I was just, okay, that's his line of thought. Interesting, but not necessarily even immediately trusting that that's the way to play. Maybe I still thought that, okay, so that guy has this thought, but perhaps my line of thought is still better or whatever. 
So it was only after a couple of months later, or maybe even a year where I, where I dove more into that direction after like the eye had initially been opened through his message and started to realize more that, okay, actually, damn, that made a lot of sense what this guy wrote to me back then. Let's dive deeper into it. And you mentioned that your former coach, Nick Howard, with a poker detox would have told you that this hand was forcing aggression and that it was fancy play syndrome. And now you mentioned Linus also, it sounded like he also criticized the play in some way, but in a different way. So can you kind of elaborate on that distinction? Nick would essentially mainly focus on the mental aspects of, at least back then, when, when I was about the mental aspects of what led me to make this, this decision and trying to figure out like some kind of in, inconsistencies in this regard. And in this case, he would be justified. It does make sense. There was a lot of that, I think, going on within me to, to make these kind of plays or whatever rationalizations or not finding some better, some better moves to make. But it wouldn't be theory focus. Linus' response, on the other hand, didn't go into any of forcing aggression or fancy play syndrome or whatever. He was just more talking about the ranges that my opponents would be having and whether or not it makes sense to have a three-betting strategy against those kind of ranges and uh, whether or not this, like he was kind of guiding me through his, even if I didn't play like that, he just assumed that I was playing in his way because that is the correct way to play. And that allowed me to see how I was supposed to be thinking about the spot. So he went through the more theory kind of way of thinking about, okay, how, how would the three betting strategy be looking here? How is my opponent's range on the river looking? Does it make sense to bluff here with a range, blah, blah, blah. And then he would also af afterwards talk about exploiting further, just not having any bluffs, for example. He also had a philosophical comment on what he thinks in terms of how a betting range should be looking like in terms of how many bluffs there should be, should be in there what he thinks about overbluffing, underbluffing, or not bluffing at all. And instead of going to the solver first approach and then getting lost in that territory, you should really deeply understand the fundamentals that built this game. Bluff to value ratio, mandatory defense frequencies, uh, geometric bet sizings. And because those are the building blocks on how you should be thinking about the game. And instead, we have people running sims and trying to replicate solvers. And it can work, right? But what happens if you memorize solvers well, like get good at running sims and even note locking on all of these things is that you will be playing some kind of strategy that will probably not be losing if you're doing it well. And it's potentially winning decently if you're good with the note locks. But, but it will always be temporary because... The way that you make decisions isn't founded on you creating strategies and you playing strategies, but you just replicating things that you've ran. And you will never have that confidence of being able to sit down at whatever table and knowing how to deal with the situation at hand, because uh, you're going to feel very unfamiliar when you're faced with situations that you haven't studied, for example. So instead, what I would say is go to the fundamentals, really understand the fundamentals and People say they understand bluff to value or mandatory defense frequency, but it's just not true. Like most people don't really understand these concepts well. And then try to understand when I use a solver, I'm just getting inspired by the strategies that the solver is using. And then I can think, okay, my strategy would be looking this and this. The solver would be playing a bit differently. Why is he playing differently? What am I, what am I missing out here? But 
a lot of people instead make the assumption that the solver strategy is the correct one and you're supposed to be playing like that. What you're instead supposed to do is to educate yourself and build the thought process that produces these strategies instead of just replicating strategies and memorizing them. A lot of the concepts that you mentioned, like minimum defense frequency and geometric bet sizing, of course, are visible by looking at solver outputs. But I think geometric bet sizing is a really good example because you can certainly see them in echoing in like so many different solver outputs. So couldn't you argue that seeing ge geometric bet sizing, which means like betting an equal proportion of the pot until you get all in on the river, couldn't you say that working with a solver helps you understand that because it um, pops up in so many situations where you might not have realized, well, I didn't realize it would come up as much, like in particular with a very small SPRs that it continues trying to use that geometric sizing rather than just like jamming on the turn. How do you feel like it stops people from understanding it? Because I feel like in some ways you could argue the exact opposite. What I would say to that is, if you run toy games and you know what you're doing, then it can be very useful in order to understand these things better. But the problem that I see is that you try to deviate your understanding from real solver outputs. And these real solver outputs are so complex. There are so many blocker effects going on and just constantly the wrong conclusions are being made. And you, not just that the wrong conclusion is being made, but you're sure of the wrong conclusion because you say to yourself, I saw that in the solver. So one example would be, in your case, when you mentioned geometric bet sizings in um, in low SPR situations, it's it would be the wrong conclusion to say, okay, in low SPR situations, it's like this. And rather, you would want to understand it more in the sense of, okay, in low SPR situations, the ranges are very, are very tight. So usually the uh, the equity shifts on the board are more are less dramatic on turns and rivers. And because of that, geometric bet sizings become more of a factor that maximize your expected value because of the way that the mandatory defense frequency interacts with bet sizing. So this kind of understanding is very difficult to generate just by looking at really complex sims. Another example would be mandatory defense frequency. When I would be hearing people talking about uh, the solver under defending or over defending mandatory, uh, under defending mainly mandatory defense frequency on rivers, like sure, very rarely you are going to have a spot like this, for example, if an opponent would not be able to come up with enough bluffs. But for the most part, it's just a misunderstanding of the mandatory defense frequency where people see, okay, uh, you're supposed to be defending, let's say, 50% of your range here on the river and the solver, you look at the defending frequency being like 37% and your conclusion would be that, ah, okay, mandatory defense frequencies aren't important when a person has a range advantage or something. And that's kind of your conclusion when in reality, it's just, no, your mandatory defense frequency is relevant regarding the part of your range that beats the bluff catches. And if you would be looking at that part, the solver is actually defending 50%. So that kind of nuance is important and almost impossible to see without going theory first. So the way that people maybe used to study poker a little bit more before solvers, well, people who are interested yeah. in math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. why you have like the heroes of the game, like Alfond and Saw, still crushing it. I don't know how many Sims they're running, but I feel like they are confident in their game and they will always be doing fine because they have this fundamental understanding versus people who are running Sims the whole time and might be crushing right now, but we don't know how that will evolve in the future. And also it's overwhelming, of course. So even if you know that maybe you should sit down and try to understand something. That's true. 
it can certainly be overwhelming when you also feel like you have to understand all these different spots. I think you mentioned in uh it was either tw- yeah, it was a Twitter, um, your Twitter feed, your viral Twitter feed about going to Thailand and deciding to become a professional poker player with no bankroll. You said actually that while fabled everywhere, nobody really understood this concept. And you were talking about, I believe it was Game Theory Optimal Play or Nash Equilibrium. Mm-hmm. In another interview, I believe, with the Overbet Express, you said that no one truly understands poker theory. Of course, I think you meant very few people understand poker theory. What is that the most surprising thing to you about what professionals don't understand? Man, honestly, I'm I'm baffled all the time at the thought processes of ranks that even play really high stakes and no splits. I think it's very rare that I meet somebody who has a very clean and structured thought process in the way that actually makes sense and is consistent through the through the actual theory and the actual mathematics behind the game. Usually there's always a lot of misconceptions going on. Usually when I quiz fundamental concepts that are supposed supposedly understood, there will come confusions and wrong answers. The biggest thing that people don't do well in this game is that they don't play their own strategy that is founded upon a theoretical foundation. And instead, they either play in a way that has a lot of assumptions and rationalizations and doing things because they've seen it somewhere else, but there's no real solidity behind those actions and the thought pro- like you can't like you can't explain them from first principles. I would say that's the thing playing from first principles. So you either have that or just random jumble of thoughts, which result in some kind of decision-making process, or you have the memorization crowd, which does a lot of memorizing, does a lot of trying to find like the optimal sizes in on specific spots and doing fine probably, but missing the mark in the sense where actually this optimal size is less important than having a proper thought process and having the proper range awareness and being able to node lock in your own mind and understand how the node locks happen on, for example, on the turn. Focusing on the wrong things where people are really focused on bet sizes, even more so than frequencies, which is such the heart of poker. You know, I'm thinking about it also relating to life, people being so busy and so much great information out there. I'm not allowing people to kind of like create their own code or their own core principles Mm. and therefore getting confused. I completely agree, actually, with this. I mean, I I think in chess and in poker and even in writing, just having a clear mind and trying to like write things out like a complete beginner would is so valuable. When I study poker, I always use, lately I've been using an Excel spreadsheet and I do a lot of writing though to just explain to myself things in English um, without any kind of math or anything, just like paragraphs. I did the same thing when I studied chess, just really basic stuff where I was already a master level player and the stuff I was writing to myself would sound like a complete beginner. Mm -hmm. Like I'm playing this move to develop my bishop. Like, (laughs) duh, but no, like seriously, like that was actually valuable to just kind of like go to those core principles and explain it in a way that made kind of sense to anyone. For sure. Yeah, really like this first principles thinking because what it comes down to is that poker is actually a game that can be mathematically solved, right? Like there is a correct way on how to approach this game. There are, there are real solutions to every single spot. There's no GTO versus exploit. It's just a matter of making assumptions and changing the ranges and uh, 
node locking, right? But there is a solution. Like you could you could compare like uh, some live players exploits and have the same results if if they would be optimal have the same results be reproduced by the solver if you would be just inputting the same parameters and the assumptions about the ranges if they would be correct what i'm saying is that there is this correct way of actually approaching the game it's a scientific game it's mathematically based so you want to get to a point where when you play your strategy your moves you should be able to reason them back to first principles you should be able to really get to the base of your decision making and say okay this actually makes logical sense and a, a lot of players just do stuff so if you would compare to chess i'm not very good in chess i haven't played it much but so so first principles i guess in this case would be okay you're actually making this move to develop the bishop and that's like the core aspect of the move uh, but then other players would be seeing you play and not be realizing that okay this is the reason why she's doing it and instead just play the opening without understanding why these things are being done and often then misapplying them in situations where that reasoning isn't there. That's really interesting stuff. I want to run by you a thought that I had about tournaments because I know you don't play a lot of tournaments, but pre-flap ranges in tournaments are obviously very vast because they change with every different stack size and like ICM changes throughout the tournament. And then there's asymmetric stack sizes. So usually everybody has like a different stack size at the table. It's just like such a mess. I've seen you talk about in interviews as well as in this interview about not trying to over memorize things. Like recently I came to the opposite conclusion that I should try to memorize a lot of preflop in particular, just so that I could think about more important things when I'm actually playing and not mm. like get bogged down. Almost like memorizing so that you just have your default and you can like think more about exploiting and like the more complex like post-flop stuff. It's very difficult though, because pre-flop is really so vast. Of course, I don't mean every stack size. Obviously I chunk them into a few key ones like 40 and, and uh, 120, something like that. Do you think that thought process is flawed as well? No, I think it's uh, pretty legitimate actually, especially pre-flop because pre-flop is actually so complicated. I would be lying if I said I fully understand how pre-flop works. So pre-flop is so complicated and it's very important it makes sense to memorize them because other players are actually following the preflop ranges also quite accurately usually, right? Like when you're playing against a good rec, you kind of know what their opening range looks like if you memorize it correctly. So you get an accurate image of their range. So that's legitimate. But let's say memorizing some kind of river solution is not that relevant because likely your opponent's range is going to be looking very different and it makes more sense to try to come up with a strategy based on your understanding of the game than to play some kind of suboptimal solution that based on a grid that has no not much relevancy to the actual situation at hand. The earlier in the game tree, the more relevant the solutions are. For instance, uh, with the flop, using solvers to look at flops, it, to me, it always seems like way, way more important than looking at the turn or the river because there's more likelihood that it'll be accurate. There's actually one really interesting thing here that I want to share with you, and that's the fact that there are actually multiple equilibria in in, in, in many spots, there are multiple equilibria in the game theory optimal solutions. So the idea that the, sol the output that you're getting from the solver is the correct one is already debunked by that fact that there are multiple equilibria that maximize the expected value of the position, for example, and the, strat the frequencies, the sizes, they might be looking different. So when you run a toy game, there's usually one solution, but in complex spots, there are multiple solutions that look differently. So that idea of having to follow a specific solution or memory already starts falling apart there. 
Of course, it's still valuable. Of course, it's still valuable to know how uh, a check raising strategy would look like in the most common spots versus range bets, for example. Would be even more valuable would be to generate a level of understanding where you can naturally generate this kind of baseline just based on the fact, just based on your understanding of the game. So when you can estimate your opponent's betting strategies either based on being able to make very good assumptions and reads on the specific player or on what would a good strategy look like and you'd be able to come up with it yourself and then you'll just counter it. So you said something really interesting in the Overbet Express podcast where you said the beauty of the game is invisible if you don't fully understand poker. That's what I truly believe. I'm pretty sure of it because I remember how I viewed the game back then to how I view it now. And back then it was just poker. Nowadays, I see it a lot more like a strategy game. It's actually just a strategy game and you just try to play maybe maybe comparable to chess. Um, you just try to play the right strategies. You see kind of the intricacies behind the game. And it's so beautiful how some of these strategies look like when I run some Sims, when I run some toy games. It's actually very fascinating how the solvers manage to capture the expected value that they do. It's very beautiful how concepts like bluff to value actually make so much sense. And really seeing why the game is based on these concepts is mind-blowing. Can you give me an example of pure beauty in poker? Because we have a lot of examples of that in chess, these compositions, we call them, where you create beautiful chess positions. You put a few pieces on the chessboard and you say, white to move and win, and the solution is just so mind-boggling, but it's truth and it's simplicity and truth. Can you give me an example of what that would be like in poker in your opinion? It's hard to come up with these situations because the game is so complex, but I would say even even just these very simple toy game situations where you have a polarized versus bluff catcher situation and you see uh, in position, or let's say out of position as the bluff catchers, you see out of position checking, in position always betting the largest size possible and then uh, constructing their range in the bluff to value way so, so when you talk about bluff-to-value ratio, for example, usually people think about it in terms of making opponents' bluff catches indifferent, whatever other kind of thoughts there are. And it's an okay way to think about it, but when you think about it that way, it's just some kind of concept. I realize that when you want to bet a bluff-to-value ratio, it's not the cause and effect is spun the wrong way around. It's not in order to make your opponent's bluff catches indifferent. It's actually in order to maximize your expected value. And you're going to start seeing like all these connections between all the other concepts, how mandatory defense frequency is also just a tool in order to maximize your expected value in cases where you're uncertain about how the other person's bluffing frequency looks like. You can calculate it by figuring out, okay, what frequency do you have to defend in order to make this bluff's indifferent. You can calculate it like that, but the purpose is not to make someone else indifferent. It's in order to make yourself indifferent to what the other person's strategy looks like. And that's pretty mind-boggling, especially when you see it appearing everywhere. And you're going to start seeing it more and more in all the solver outputs once you start understanding these concepts. And then you realize like, holy shit, this entire game is based around these things. The simplicity, the complexity of the game, which is all based on like very simple principles. That makes sense because that is usually what a lot of the beauty in chess is too. When you see the simplicity amongst all the complexity, I would say. You made a very unusual decision. 
when you decided to quit your job in uh, finance to become a professional poker player, despite having no bankroll. You talk a lot about decision trees and how do you come to this decision and looking back on it, do you think it was a correct decision in terms of game theory or do you think you just got lucky? With the knowledge that I had today, I would make a different decision. That being said, I'm very happy with where I am today. It was very high risk. I think I made the best decision that I could have made given the way that I saw the world back then. And so the decision was bad because I lacked scope, right? I, I didn't understand how the world worked. The way that I made the decision is that I tried to look into the future of the different routes, basically. So if I stay in my job, how would my future look like if I do this? Like how would probability distributions look like of my possible futures? And I just underestimated what would have been possible if I would have just stayed in finance, for example. I underestimated what I could have done just by, it. I, I, I felt like I needed a drastic change and maybe I did need that, but I could have definitely done it in a more elegant way. Instead, I forced myself to change and I'm very lucky that it went well. I think it could have also gone bad. Certainly in many spots, I got lucky. Yeah, in hindsight, I'm very happy with where I'm right now. But if, I, if it was my little brother in the same situation, I would have just sat down with him and had a couple of conversations and tried to open his eyes and other, uh, other options. And if he still wants to go for it, then I hope it goes well. So you're 21 at the time and you saw these, these options of staying in finance, playing poker professionally, moving to Thailand, I assume, because it was cheaper to live and playing poker professionally. And basically you're saying that it was smart to look at all these different options and the probabilities, but that you misevaluated yeah. the traditional route, that you thought that it would, you would have like a cap on your earnings and now realize you could have been like aggressive even in that option. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's different mental frameworks actually when it comes to these kind of long-term decisions. And one, one that I used back then unknowingly was that of regret minimization. So I thought, what would I, if I, if I was in my deathbed and I wouldn't have tried to become a professional poker player, would I regret that? And the answer was, yeah, I would definitely regret that from my point of view back then. And staying in finance was like that. So I tried to minimize my regret of old future me by pursuing my dreams. And I think that approach is fine in itself. It's a decent decision-making framework. What was just a mistake was that I didn't have clear vision on and you never do, right? But I had very unclear vision on how the path would look like. I really, essentially, I made an emotional decision and I justified it rationally how we often do, right? Like, so emotionally, I wanted to become a poker professional. I wanted to uh, grow as a person. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to just understand more. And so my decision emotionally was already made. And then I rationalized by reducing the other options. So I reduced the option of staying the traditional road to having to be in the same job or the same type of job, having to work 120 hours per week, not being able to develop myself as a person. And obviously, like that's very unattractive. But the reality is that it wouldn't have to be like that. I could have found a different job. I could have started my own company. I could have done all kinds of things that wouldn't have necessarily involved no personal growth or not the same kind of growth. Maybe it was true that I wouldn't have grown in the same way if I wouldn't have been forced to, but those were the things that were just lacking in my decision-making back then. You can justify any decision if you make the uh, status quo seem really 
unappealing, but usually people do the opposite. So it is still really interesting. Usually there's like a huge status quo bias, right? That to just like stay in the current path that you're on rather than to look for other ones. So the fact that you kind of really flip that is, is quite interesting. Although your passion for poker probably also really tied into that. And also the fact that my status quo was not attractive to me at all. Because the particular job you were in was like 120 hours a week. Yeah, just because of, uh, I was just unhappy in general with, I, I, I took the job because it's just kind of one of the options that I had growing up in a very traditional household as well. So I thought I was either doctor, lawyer, investment banker. So out of those three, I just chose the one that was the most appealing to me, but it wasn't that appealing. I didn't enjoy the job. I thought like none of this made any sense. And I also mentioned in the Overbed Express that it was the time where I my first relationship ended. So I was really just really unhappy with myself and asking myself a lot of questions and just wanting to grow and understand more of the world and and see. And, and I just felt like my status quo was really constraining me in that regard. Right. So it was correct to leave that job. It would be about like doing like a third option, like maybe like you said, starting your own business or finding a, a, a different job in the same world that wasn't as constricting, interesting. But frankly, now that, now that I think about it, I'm, I'm pretty sure I made the right decision. Because <laughs> you had some great adventures when you got to Thailand. Not only were you playing poker, but it sounds like you met a lot of interesting people, met like your dream girlfriend for some time. You described her in an interesting way in the Twitter thread. I think you got, you got some criticism for it, I believe. You call, what, did you call her a, a manic pixie dream manic girl? Manic pixie dream girl. Yeah, that was, just, that was just a term that I found somewhere. Like it fit her very well. She was... Uh... She was like very adventurous and also like your dream, your dream girl as in like extremely attractive and interesting and intelligent, but also like wild. It sounded like. Which yeah, yeah, exactly. It was probably like an opposite to you and your upbringing. Your life. Yeah, complete opposite. Exactly as you described her. And I learned so much from that relationship. She really opened me up to the, the whole creative way of seeing the world. And the, uh, so she was, she was a cook at the best restaurant in Asia. So actually the number one restaurant in Asia, she was a cook there and she had so much passion for her job and it was like an art to her and everything she did was like very artistic. So I, I never, I never had that kind of experience before. So learned so much from that relationship, but the decision-making of going into that relationship was wobbly at best. Wait, what type of restaurant is the, considered the best in Asia? Yeah. So the restaurant was called Gagan. Uh, G-A-G-G-A-N, I think he's just a very famous chef. And it was, I don't know how the ranking systems work, but at least in some high tier rankings, it was officially ranked number one. I think it was Indian. It was very experimental food. You went there, I take it, a few times? Nah, I really regret not going there. What? You didn't yeah. never went? Oh my God, where yeah. are you now? What city do you live in now? I'm in Berlin right now. So you're far from there. Oh man, you missed out. Yeah, I missed out, yeah. If I recall correctly from the thread, at some point you were making so much money that you thought it made more sense for her to like kind of help you organize your life than to work at that restaurant. Around two or three months in, I convinced her to kind of be my executive assistant, which went really poorly. I had like very high hopes. I was very ambitious. Things were going well. I was just really on the self-improvement grind, wanted to optimize everything. And I envisioned her so helping me do that so that I wanted to take the responsibility of making sure that we get to live the most crazy life. And I just wanted her to support me on that route. But 
yeah, I learned that like she just had different ideas and it didn't go that well. So overall, it was a huge learning experience. If you did it again, do you think you would try to keep like the business and personal separate for a little longer? Because obviously she was very passionate about food. In hindsight, it was painful to, like, she, has so, she had so much potential. I think she should have stayed in fine dining. I'm sorry that I took that opportunity for, away from her. I don't know what she's doing nowadays. I mean, I learned from that experience in the sense that I take commitment much more seriously. It just played out in a different way than we imagined it. I read a quote at some point, which went something along the lines of your parents prepare you to how to deal with failure for the most part, but it's rare that your parents prepare you on how to deal with the, with when you succeed at the first try. I had this dream. I wished everything to have it. And in two years in, I was just living it and I had, I had no clue what I was doing in this world. People always talk about dealing with failure, but Dealing with success is obviously so important because there's so much at stake. When you're really successful, you know, who knows, you might not get that many more opportunities and then you actually have a lot of resources and who knows if the situation is going to replicate itself. For sure. Yeah. And, and this big opportunities and also just the fact that if you don't know how to solidify your position, it's also very easy to lose it again. It's also something I think that women struggle with a lot because people are often very, um, critical of women who are extremely successful, whereas if they're moderately successful, they're very flattering. So a lot of women who have a big success struggle with like that spotlight. Ebony Kenny, almost everybody loves Ebony. Like she's so great for the game. But then when she has a big success, suddenly there's more haters, right? Mm. And I, th I think that effect's really amplified for women. That skill of being able to accept success and to revel in it, it's just really important. You probably had to deal with that as well, I assume. I definitely uh, struggle with that a little bit, but I also think that um, something I could get better at as well. A lot of times when I've had big successes, successes, I've uh, also um, celebrated like too quickly, maybe. Mm. For instance, like all of my major chess championship titles that I won, I clinched before the last round and I got so excited celebrating that I actually lost my final game. It doesn't always matter that much, but one of these games I was actually playing for a Grandmaster Norm. So like I'd won my championship title, but I didn't get my Grandmaster Norm. And I think about some women who are really able to like revel in that, that spot and not like bring themselves down immediately. It's a very key skill. Not celebrate too early, huh? Yeah, that's a big one. From the women I've seen in poker, I think Vanessa Cade is doing really good a job of that. She won a 1.5 million on Poker Stars and like the uh, the biggest Sunday million ever. And you saw her immediately jumping up in stakes and of course, you know, learning along the way, but also just being really serious. She wasn't like making any huge big ticket purchases and she was just kind of like accepting that new position and getting right to work. Impressive. I think staking in poker is kind of probably a really, really good preparation for the business world. Mm. I've never done any staking in poker beyond like, mm. obviously I've bought pieces of people in tournaments, which is a very miniature version of like staking. But uh, then you really have to know who to trust, right? And because there are no contracts, you're dealing with something very similar to the kind of like a more soft skill area of who to hire for like at-will employment and who can you trust. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, th I think you're right. Like staking is a very good good preparation for business. And what also just came to my mind was 
if we look at poker and staking in general as a preparation for business, I was thinking, okay, what's lacking in that equation? And what's lacking to me right now is the type of work that you have to do when you build your own business. And so on one hand, hard work, but not just putting in the hours in the sense that, okay, if you're a successful professional poker player, you already know how to manage your time. You already know how to play the hours and just grind it out. But when you when you launch your businesses, you have to just keep figuring out what to do and then do them and figuring it out again. Like you, you don't actually know in which road to go and to put that kind of uncertain work in all the time is more difficult or has been more difficult to get into than knowing, okay, I just have to sit in, at the tables and grind out my six hours per day or something. It's very easy when things go well to be like, okay, things are going good. You just take a break. I go to the spa or something. But when you have your own business, you can always figure out something to do. It's very easy not to do that. It's very easy not to sit down and say, okay, what are the next steps? What can we do better when things are going well? And in poker, it's very clear when you're not just putting in the hands. Poker is obviously a simplified version of life. With the financial aspects of it, it's very complicated, but I know what you mean. There are parts of it which are super simplified. So you're not allowed to tell us yet anything about your new business venture. Is it in the poker or gaming space? No, it's just tech. It's just tech. Yeah. How much poker are you going to be playing? I rarely play any nowadays, especially because in some kind of regulations in Germany that we can't play higher than 200 no limit online. Like I think before that I had the plan to just grind some good volume again at high stakes, but I, I guess that was one of the reasons why I decided to do other things and focus on other things. So, so that was good, I guess, in hindsight. Uh, but I don't play that much anymore. I still coach because that's just fun. And I, I coach some of the brightest minds. It's very, it, it sometimes it blows my mind away how smart these guys are. Then I just work on my businesses. Yeah, one is in the tech industry. And after like two years ago, when I went back to Germany, after when COVID hit, I decided to go back to university and learn. I had a really like, uh, I guess, quarter life crisis, existential crisis where started to think deeply again about, hey, who do I want to be as a person? What am I going to do now in my next step in life? What's the most meaningful thing I can do? And so on and so forth. And I did some research and figured, came to the conclusion that I had to do something in artificial intelligence. So I went back to university and studied computer science. And now I'm building in that direction. So that's one of the things that I'm doing. And then I'm also doing some poker coaching. I really appreciate you talking to me for the podcast for the grid of this fascinating ace queen hand. I, I got to ask you one more question before I let you go. You have another really great thread on Twitter where you talk about all the different things you learned about life from poker, from probabilistic thinking to, you know, separating results from the outcome and all, all these really interesting examples. What would be your number one that you think people should really take from their poker play? and study to their life. Top of my mind without thinking too long about an answer. On one hand, more in terms of expected value. So that involves having to be really honest about the situation that you're currently in and then look at the expected value of the decisions that you can making. But also, and this is really important, not forgetting the variance aspect. So you have to choose an expected value and variance combination that you're fine with. It's possible that you have a huge expected value opportunity, but the variance is huge and you're going to end up broke a lot of the time, for example. So just solely basing it on expected value is also not the play. 
you know, the other thing that came up in your chat, which also came up in my life is evaluation. Um, when you're younger, sometimes you misevaluate the ending. Like I write about this. I wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal and it's something that as a feminist is sometimes hard for me to talk about. Some people think of it as anti-feminist or traditional, which is completely untrue. But um, I misevaluated having a family and having kids. I didn't think it would be so damn fun. Mm. It's amazing. I love having a kid. So I wish I'd started a little earlier, but I didn't evaluate it correctly. I was like, this is going to be okay. I didn't realize it was going to be great. And then also what just came to my mind when you talked about this is if you truly want to be successful as a professional poker player, one of the necessary skills, one of the most important skills is to be able to look at yourself honestly, to be able to really ask yourself, okay, what am I actually not getting? What am I actually doing wrong? And that allows you to then change and get better. And that's definitely a skill from poker that has had tremendous impact in my life. And certainly this hand, which was the beginning of a journey into high stakes poker that was extremely successful for you and also led to many other pathways. Thank you so much for joining me on the grid. Check raise, baby. Wei Sai, high stakes online player and now um, soon to be successful CEO. And I'm sure we'll find out way more about that on your Twitter, which of course I'll, I'll link to in the show notes. Thanks again for joining me. Thanks as well, Jen. It was very fun talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Grid, sponsored by PokerStars. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.